Uh, everybody talks about a carbon price. Everybody says it's right around the corner. You know, again, 60 votes, bipartisan, and you gotta get McConnell to say yes, so I don't think that's happening anytime soon. And even if it were, it would run counter to the president-elect's no raising taxes on families under $400,000. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This is part two of our post-election analysis and what it might all mean for energy and climate policy. Our guests this week are Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners, Kyle Danish with Van Ness Feldman, John Larson with the Rhodium Group. They joined Sarah Lattice Law here in the Energy Program to talk about their outlooks under a Biden administration. In this part two, John and Sarah kick it off with a list of what we might see or not see on the legislative front. I'll turn it over to them now. So, John... Uh, We have a divided government again, and we hope that we're going to be able to do some things legislatively, but we're not entirely sure what those might be. I know you've been looking at bills that were teed up this year in the hopes of a Democratic administration. Why don't you share some of your thoughts with us about what you think are the the legislative art of the possible going into into next year? First of all, I think it's worth echoing some of Kevin's thoughts earlier about the general political dynamic and the fact that a lot of this comes down to what McConnell's going to permit into onto a, a floor discussion in the Senate, right? And uh, assuming, you know, we're not in a 50-50 tie with, with the Georgia um, runoffs playing out a certain way. I think first and foremost, there will be more opportunities in this next Congress than there were in the last few years. And that's largely because you now have a president who's willing to try and make a deal and make climate more of a priority. Uh, But those deals are not going to be of the scale and scope and ambition of anything that people I think were hoping for Um, at the start. We're really in the base hits kind of situation, not home run situation. Uh, And again, this goes back to what I said in the Q&A with Kevin is, from our work, it is clear you could you could spend a very large chunk of money in the early 2020s and make a very big dent in the progress towards decarbonizing key sectors uh, over the next decade. But the only real legislative pathway to doing that is that economic stimulus opportunity we talked about before. Um, and the way things are looking, it doesn't look like we'll be in that situation. So then, then it's worth looking back to say what uh, President-elect Biden's uh, campaign platform has right, and what 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 was he standing for? One is 100% clean energy by 2035. So there's lots of ways you could do that. The most logical is a clean electric standard, um, a, a policy that has been proposed by different members uh, members of both parties over the last 10, 15 years. Has gotten a lot of new attention in the Democratic side lately. Uh, you almost certainly need 60 votes in the Senate to pass a CES. And it almost certainly will mean the end of coal unless there's an explicit carve out for coal generation with CCS in a CES, which means uh, I highly doubt a floor discussion with, you know, the leader McConnell in charge. Right. That option's off the table, at least for the foreseeable future. Zev mandates was, a you know, well, to be clear, Biden never campaigned on mandates, but there was a Zev goal uh, for electrifying the transportation sector. I, I do not think uh, there will be appetite, again, for six, with, with 60 votes to get something like that. 
in this Congress um, for all the same political reasons. Same thing with electrification of buildings um, or like really ramped up and, you know, revamped building codes that could actually drive some real long-term change in that sector. So uh, we're back to carbon capture and innovation on one side (laughs) and renewable energy or bust on the other side. And it's worth saying, okay, well, if we're in these like much more constrained conditions, uh, what really matters, right? Like where can we get the tons and where can we get the bipartisan traction to even have the conversation? And I would say there's really two sectors that matter most in that, that fit that bill, it's industry and electric power. And in electric power, we've looked very closely at the Green Act, which is the Democrats' renewable energy extenders package, uh, which notably does have a carbon capture tax credit extension component to it. And the Green Act on its own uh, is really good for renewables. It is not necessarily good for CO2 emissions in the power sector because that new renewables mostly displaces gas and nuclear. You're just not getting the tons you would want. The next quantum of renewables on the system does not do for CO2 what it used to do um, because of the nature of the changing sector. So, well, then what do you what do you do to fix that? Well, you know, another part of the conversation that could come up is support for existing nuclear plants, which are more and more of them are on the ropes. We saw um, the largest plants yet announced for economic retirement come up from uh, an Exelon fleet in Illinois just a few months ago. much, much larger than uh, anything that had been economically announced for retirement previously. Uh, And uh, there is some uh, bipartisan discussion around some sort of tax credit for for keeping those online. Guess what? When you keep them online, you get a big CO2 benefit just in and of itself. And then also you really can complement your renewable energy tax credits that way. So you could start to see a package on electric power either in an infrastructure framing or in some sort of end of year tax credit extender forcing event kind of situation where you could get a bigger space for um, impact in the electric power sector that doesn't get you to 100% clean by 2035, but at least get you on the path for that target. Uh, and frankly, I don't, I'm not arguing that the Republicans would say this is what's going to get us on the path for 2035, but, it, but they are getting something out of it, right? So that that is something to look for. I actually think that's not a crazy thing to consider in 2021. Um, And then beyond that, looking to the industrial sector, uh, there is a big need for retooling and reinvestment in our industrial base, uh, reinvestment in uh, manufacturing communities, and and not a lot of private capital available um, to do much about it. You know, this is where the 45Q carbon capture tax credit can be useful. We, we see if you did a five-year extension of 45Q, there's at least 100 million metric tons of abatement you can get per year in new CCS investment over the next decade. Like, you, you can get up to that. That's about 10% of the industrial sector right there, just with one tax credit. In, um, and that's investment spread all over the country. It's not concentrated. Um, and then, you know, uh, there's talk of other... Uh, manufacturing and reinvestment tax credits like 48C that you could actually kind of earmark money for key communities, but also earmark money for key types of retooling, right? And so that could be important for building the new manufacturing base we need that's cleaner and uh, more competitive. There's other things that we've seen in this Congress that I think could, if they don't pass in the lame duck, which, you know, the clock is running tight already, uh, 
would almost certainly come back. Uh, and part of that is the Senate energy bill and most of the key components in there, which are largely an innovation bill. But uh, they seems they, they got over the HFC impasse, which would essentially, without, without ratifying the Kigali amendments, would essentially put in place the administrative capability to ratchet down um, hydrofluorocarbons in America. And that's, that's easily 100, 200 million metric tons of abatement 10 years out. So I feel like these are, these are a lot of base hit opportunities that will need bipartisan support to get to the finish line. Um, but I think are, are fully doable. And I could go down the list into kind of the next tier of things, but like, again, focusing on the things that ha could have the biggest uh, emissions impact in the next decade, those are the few. It is worth saying, uh, everybody talks about a carbon price. Everybody says it's right around the corner. You know, again, 60 votes, bipartisan, and you gotta get McConnell to say yes. So I don't think that's happening anytime soon. And even if it were, uh, it would run counter to the president-elect's no raising taxes on families under $400,000 uh, in income. So I just don't see that playing out anytime soon uh, either. So we, you know, it's all about base hits. Well, so I, most of what you said, I, I, I found fascinating and I have lots of questions. I want to ask you about hydrogen, but maybe I'll hold off on that uh, because you mentioned carbon tax and you said no, and it's pretty clear no is is for sure what we're gonna see right now. But there's a foreseen event that seems like it's coming. We've been talking about it a lot at Clearview, which is that uh, the Europeans seem like they're going to put a border adjustment in place. Uh, and uh, one way or another, that's gonna affect exporters of everything, not just energy goods. Do you see appetite, maybe not in the first two years, but maybe 2023, 2024, when the carbon border adjustment mechanism is alive and kicking, does Congress say maybe now's the time for a price on carbon or does, it, does your no price uh, future look, look the same? I think if McConnell's not the leader in 2023, then, then you have, or, if, or any coal state senator, frankly, uh, is in charge, then maybe you have a conversation. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. There, there, there's the flip side of the carbon price thing, which is if you have enough revenue, then maybe you can buy off the few folks you need to get to yes, right? Like if you, you know, you can always funnel money to different places. And, uh, but I, I don't know, I, with the border tax adjustment, that has been the theory of change for including a border tax adjustment in an American carbon price to force other countries to change. But I've never actually heard uh, an elected member of Congress say that a border tax somewhere else is going to change their behavior here. Um, but, but, but I agree that it's definitely a forcing event. Like, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, there, there is only one historical precedent I can point to. It's long and lengthy and still going on. The Airbus Boeing fight uh, led to an extraterritorial income tax fight in 2004. Europe was taxing our manufactured goods at 5%, raising 1% a month. Uh, starting in March of 2004, and by October, we changed our tax laws, which is to say that there's a, a thesis we operate with that it wouldn't be for the climate, but for the commerce, uh, that Republicans could find their way to this fee. Uh, it might not be a behavior-changing price on carbon. It might be more of a revenue-raising and market-opening price on carbon, uh, but it might be a price nonetheless. But Kevin, doesn't it, it seems like the revenue-raising uh, part of it might be the the more likely forcing function here, right? If we're sort of emptying the coffers to uh, to save the economy, wouldn't that be a more likely uh, forcing function for for doing a carbon carbon price rather than 
uh, succumbing to the Europeans and their, uh, you know, trade pressure. That uh, seems like that would be, you know, anathema to, uh, to, to many Republicans. What do, you, what do you think of the, the need for revenue as a, as a forcing function? I mean, I like freedom fries with ketchup as much as anyone. Uh, but the, the issue is uh, re-election and yeah. the impacts in districts. You know, it's not a question of who's doing what to whom, but whether or not you can get re-elected. So in, in 2024, just like in 2004, there'll be vulnerable members from districts who are willing to talk and senators from, from at-risk states, which make it an issue. The forcing uh, side of the revenue story assumes that modern monetary theory hasn't died its horrible inflationary death yet. Right. Uh, and I think that might be a good assumption, at least if Jay Powell is going to go asymmetrical uh, and start forcing things, that's different. But he's symmetrical now. He'll, he'll go above a 2% inflation rate for as long as he needs to because uh, central banks are no longer independent. So uh, welcome to the COVID fight. Uh, so I, I, I think that, you know, fiscal rectitude may be wielded as a cudgel uh, before it's actually adopted as a doctrine that justifies this. I think that's a fair assessment. Could we go back to the border carbon adjustment for a moment? Because I've been intrigued to see some, I, I don't know, if, let's say Republican policy voices. These are like uh, committee staff level people talking about doing, just doing a, a US border carbon adjustment on account of our uh, industries just being more efficient and emissions light relative to, to other, other countries. So border tax adjustment without a tax. Does this group see that as a, a viable pathway? I'm a, little, I'm a little puzzled by that one. Maybe you need to understand it better. I have heard this uh, from a few folks now uh, inside the Bellway. And I mean, I'm, I'm not the WTO pro here, but it does seem like when you put a border uh, tax at the border on something when you're not taxing your home industry, that just doesn't seem to compute. Uh, and so, in, fa in fact, I, I think, you know, the Kevin's theory of change is maybe the more, um, a more likely one uh, in that sense. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, I've definitely heard it more than once now and uh, not quite sure where it would go. Uh, and I, I would also note the president-elect had it in his platform. There was, uh, there was discussion of a border tax there, uh, separate from any connection to any carbon pricing in America, right? Like there was no direct connection between those two mechanisms. So, so I don't know. So are we going to still have a WTO? I think yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> I was to say that that seems, you know, these Bretton Wood institutions, they're so yesterday. Um, why do we have to, uh, you know, uh, uphold these, all these uh, sort of ancient laws? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, but, but it does seem like we're in sort of a new day uh, on, on trade law and trade institutions. Uh, so I wonder whether there's just a, a willingness to sort of blow past that or, or just welcome the fight if there's going to be a fight. Um, I guess for that reason, I, it seems to me it's more likely if the Europeans were to impose border tax adjustments, you'd just see not necessarily the adoption of a, of a carbon price, but just an, eff an effort to adopt countervailing border carbon adjustments, even without a carbon policy to go along with it. Um, you know, sort of like, oh, you want to have a trade fight? We'll have a trade fight. Um, but I admit to being in a very speculative zone at this point. One other thing I just want to say back to like by the whole like you need bipartisanship and you need to get to 60 if anything's going to pass. It's worth noting that like it'll be interesting to watch and see with with the a climate denying president out of office whether or not some republicans actually do 
try to put legislation on the table, whether or not it has any hopes of going anywhere. But like, actually, are we back to a time like back in the early mid 2000s when you actually had some bipartisan efforts on climate and clean energy legislation that, you know, never, I mean, sometimes there were floor votes, but like there was never um, a real, you know, broad regular order push on something, but at least you could start to see different ideas put on the table in a way that could be seriously discussed. And and, and again, the, the border tax adjustment makes me think of it. It's like, you could actually see, none of this needs to be comprehensive. You could actually see a lot of very small, you know, just like discrete ideas put out in a bipartisan way. But that's, that's again, if the Republican Party is now ready to start talking about this stuff again and reaching across the aisle to, to figure out how to, how to get to yes on, on discrete ideas. And, you know, that, that's a big question in and of itself. So I'm going to leave my uh, bipartisan prognostication to after we get um, to the point where we've had an orderly transition of power. But I agree with John that there is a, a large amount of activity that was put into the last couple of years to envision a future where Republicans can find some productive things that they want to do on climate for precisely this type of environment. And so whether those bear fruit, we'll see. But the the border carbon adjustment conversation was leading nicely into our last topic of conversation today, which is the international agenda. And I'll just say on that conversation, which definitely is a good one to have, because as you pointed out, it is in the Biden agenda. Uh, and it is something people are considering. We've done some work on this and we'll be putting it out within the next couple of months. But what I find is the climate community thinks about trade in a very different way than the trade community thinks about trade. And so um, it's probably worth recognizing that even for the trade folks, with sort of democratic leanings, they envisioned a, a fairly aggressive and robust potential for uh, reform going forward before the election and probably have recalibrated some of that as well. What's interesting is whether or not the trade agenda can serve as an opportunistic platform for climate folks, where they could start to consider how in each potential bilateral agreement you might be going after, you can work in additional climate relevant considerations. And I do think that there is a, a potential pathway there. On the climate agenda, writ large or the international energy agenda, I think a couple different things about this environment. One, there is such a, you know, an agreed upon focus within the Biden administration and and Democrats more broadly that their ingoing goal for international climate in particular is that they have to reconstitute their credibility in a global conversation. And so they start with rejoining Paris, which we had pulled out of getting back into that agreement is going to be much easier than being credible in that conversation, which requires a new nationally determined contribution that, you know, is probably more ambitious than the last one than you got. And this is a bad outcome for that reality, right? The idea that you have to find ways of delivering more and you're kind of hamstrung in your ability to do that in a more convincing way than you did under the Obama administration. In fact, it may be a slightly less convincing way that you're able to rejoin that conversation. So I think it charts a somewhat difficult path for the Biden administration in terms of international climate dynamics. The only thing I would also say is 
there is relatively less thinking about how the international climate conversation will be different this time relative to how it was in the Paris timeframe. You know, we've moved from introductory climate uh, geopolitics, which is get a big agreement and have everybody pledge something, to have everybody deliver on what they pledged in some sort of convincing way. And that's just a fundamentally different kind of foreign policy. It is a fundamentally different kind of engagement, I think, than much of what has been taking place uh, over the last you know, several years. And so the, the question for me is going to be how inventive a new cast of Biden folks can be in terms of the way that they think about crafting new initiatives and new alliances. We have a very troubled relationship with China. It is not likely to get easier under a Biden administration how do we not have a you know fairly pedestrian approach to thinking about US-China bilateral collaboration on climate and instead be thinking about how you can use cooperation you know vis-a-vis other countries to bring about changes in the in the system that are actually really good for emissions reduction and i think that that's going to require some big initiatives that have yet to be defined by the Biden administration and are probably going to have to be informed by what they think they can deliver domestically and, quite frankly, what different countries put on the table in terms of opportunities for engagement and for advancing this agenda. Everything else writ large, though, I would say on the sanctions and the trade side of things will probably be more predictable and methodical looking a little bit more like what we typically think of as foreign policy. But I don't know that it would necessarily be completely different from what we saw under the Trump administration in terms of tone, in terms of the uh, willingness to use sanctions for foreign policy, in terms of thinking, rethinking trade and how much it does or does not benefit the American people. Those things tend to be on sort of a longer historical glide path as far as, uh, as, far as my analysis goes. So when you look out at what happened just recently in in France, uh, there was a company that was going to buy U.S. LNG, and then they decided that they would not because the French government, which owned a share of that company, said that our natural gas was not climate compatible. That that we we don't even have a border adjustment mechanism in place right now, nor is in, even a methane strategy in place in Europe, and Europe is already fighting a carbon trade war against U.S. energy. So. Uh, how does that fit into sort of this restitution and resumption scenario where things normalize? It seems like like maybe the, the, the cork is off the bottle and the carbon trade war is already underway. Yeah, I think you're right. But I guess I would see that as a continuation of the glide path, which is we've not found ways of neatly adjudicating rules on a whole range of things, climate being one of them, trade being another, we're sort of operating outside the system of sort of economics and law that we've set about in both of those realms. And so what happens is it becomes an activist's game, right? If you can find an entry point in in your ability to hold something up in a way that sends a message, didn't change law, didn't change economics, probably didn't even change emissions values, but it did change perception and sentiment. And that is likely going to be, and quite frankly, in my view, has been this way since Keystone XL, 
that is going to be the way in which a lot of these increments move forward in terms of battling uh, for, for low, low carbon versus high carbon uh, trade in, in goods. And I struggled to see all of the different ways in which it could permeate, right? So if you think about what happened after France made that decision, people said, well, where could that happen next? H how, does, how does a data point turn into a trend, to quote you, Kevin? You know, how, how, does that, how does that happen in this case? And I guess the point is it doesn't necessarily have to. You know, it's just like the regulatory signal we were talking about before. If it happens in enough different ways in enough different places, then it kind of becomes de facto what people interpret as, as some sort of signal. The challenge for a Biden administration or the challenge for, you know, folks that are looking to turn those types of signals into some sort of concrete rules of the game is that it's, it's very hard to do that. It's been very hard to translate these things into some guiding rules for people who are seeking to make investment in the energy sector. And I'm not convinced it's going to get much easier. It may in the realm of, of what Kevin was talking about on, you know, thinking about how banks disclose and think about risk because they can operate outside of that system for a little bit. But I, I still think that's going to be quite difficult. Well, I won't challenge you uh, on this. I mean, the the French regulate their language, uh, their rule-following culture, uh, but to have them be activists seizing opportunities uh, seems part and parcel for the world we live in. The, poli the political side of this, though, to tie the world at large back to the world of Biden, is that he's just one Pennsylvanian. As we as we are finalizing this this podcast, by about the same margin that that Trump appears to have, some forty-five thousand votes or so, and it's very likely a place where things like gas exports are going to matter. Um, so I'm not sure that this is, a, this is an area where it's as, as, as unalloyed clear that things can just pop up all over the place. Uh, it could get very complex for the new administration, it seems, pretty soon. Agreed. John? Well, two quick things. One, not to mention that the activist side of the community, uh, one of their top 10 things in the first 10 days is to end all fossil fuel exports. So, you know, um, there's pressure at home as well on, on some of this. Uh, the Back to just like the, the credibility point, in particular in the climate discussion, like, you know, with, with, within Paris and the UNFCCC, um, you know, getting a $2 trillion spending bill in the first year and then being able to count that would have gone a long way to leading to a more, uh, a more ambition generally, but also like, you know, the international community feeling like that ambition is, could be credibly followed through on. Um, and it's, I just want to point out that this is another area now that's come much more murky because of the divided government outcome, where uh, not, not that the spending was a bank shot and a, and a done deal by any means, but uh, without that major infusion of green investment uh, and back to the uncertainty we've just talked about on both the regulatory and, and legislative side, I think the State Department's going to have to come out with a statement um, in its next you know, communication to the UNFCCC saying, here's what we, where we are and here's where we think we can be going. And it'll be really interesting to see how they craft that given all, all, all the things we've discussed today. Kyle? Sarah, what do you what do you think of the opportunity for sort of technology institutions uh, in the international space? Um, from time to time, the State Department, under both um, the Obama administration and the prior Bush administration, have sort of launched, and I, I can't remember, there were fancy names for these uh, 
sort of agreements IPHE, that were CSLL. yeah <laughs> yes, thank you thank you um, that we're all about let's all let's all share information uh, and reduce uh, patent barriers for technology transfer because that's what this is really about so so consistent with Kevin's uh, view that it's going to be CCS and innovation, CCS and innovation. Is there a CCS and innovation sort of international agenda as well that could that could that could generate some sort of action from a Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, I think the blessing and the curse for international action on climate is that we've done a lot of different things. Like if you go out and look at all of the different industry consortiums based on innovation, based on deployment, based on specific technologies, we have a zillion of these things, right? We just, we have a lot of them. And so there are some ideas um, out there about sort of reinvigorating things from the Obama years that were an effort to consolidate some of those um, those initiatives, so like Mission Innovation and the Clean Energy Ministerial, you know, some sort of souped up version of those things could be something uh, that that would be both familiar and doable uh, if you can pr promise to increase your innovation budgets in the United States. Uh, that would be something that you could do and you could anchor around. Thinking back to Paul Bodner, who joined us for the pre-election um, uh, podcast on this topic, if you think about what happened to the Trump administration, despite the Trump administration not wanting to talk about climate change or do things on climate change. The thing that kept them consistent with the international community in this way was what companies told them they needed to do to adjust to a low carbon future, right? I mean, they they had to engage on things like CCS and nuclear and other things that industry was telling them they needed for the long term uh, to be competitive. Now that was their preferred venue for doing those things. I think there's actually a huge opportunity for the Biden administration, if they're willing to take it, to work with members of the private sector to try and drive sort of an alternative axes of activity um, that's not, you know, Paris sort of government to government conversations, negotiated outcomes, but is about really driving down emissions across sectors. Right to think about like you know another way of cutting this problem with a bunch of interests, private sector being among them, investors definitely being among them that are willing to really work hard to drive down emissions and don't really operate in that political realm, which could be increasingly difficult to make progress in. So I do think that maybe it, I don't know if it's technology or sector specific, but there are these alternative sort of ways of cutting this that could provide. Uh, new and additional opportunity for a Biden administration that kind of sidestep a lot of the politics that I don't think are going to be uh, super conducive to be. And what are you going to do? Announce, you know, Paris point 2.0. I mean, maybe maybe they will, and we'll be here in six months, and I'll be like, oh. But but you know, um, I, I think there's going to have to just be some different ways of of trying to actually make emissions reduction progress that doesn't require everybody to sort of you know have a net zero by 2050 target that we are all then scratch our heads and say, how are they going to meet that? So this has been a really uh, good conversation, if I do say so myself. I have learned a lot from each of you. Uh, we've gone on a long time, but I think it's been uh, very worthwhile. I want to offer you each an opportunity at one parting thought, something you didn't get off your chest that you want to leave our listeners for thinking about, and then we'll, then we'll close it out. So why don't we start in reverse order? We'll start with Kyle. Great, thank you. I, I share the view. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, 
So one thing to get off my chest that's sort of been in the back of my head throughout all parts of this conversation, um, when we've been talking about what's in the realm of the politically possible, and you think some ways we're sort of back in a situation much like the Obama administration had with the divided Congress and trying to make the most of it. But we're in a very different place now than, than they were then in, in terms of where industry is. There are a lot more companies out there that fossil fuel, traditional fossil fuel companies that are trying to transform themselves and a whole host of new clean energy players who are, who are gaining political power. Um, I wonder whether we've sufficiently sort of calculated their ability to influence policy and how they're gonna to react to this uh, uh, political setting. I think that's yet to be seen. Okay, Kyle, how about Kevin? I, uh, I would say that the, um, the next few months are probably going to set the tone for the next few years. And uh, it would not look like it's going well right now. Uh, you know, cooperation and, uh, and progress in Washington are not obviously at a high point. Uh, one can be optimistic, uh, but I think probably realistic is better. The question would be what, what changes things? Uh, there's a lot of things outside the energy realm that can change the tone. International crises usually do. Uh, the pandemic doesn't seem to have done. Uh, but uh, as much as we've started with the expectation that uh, we have a divided government, divided country, divisions within the Democratic Party, uh, I don't think we should entirely rule out the innate capability with which politicians, uh, especially in our country, can adopt new stances in new circumstances. And so uh, there's, there's more flexibility out there, possibly, than we realize. I don't know what it would take if a pandemic wouldn't do it, uh, but I can't rule out that it could still happen. Well, that's pseudo-optimistic. I'll take that. All right, John. Maybe just to build on, on both Kevin and Kyle's comments, I think, you know, if there's going to be opportunities and there's going to be space, it's going to in part materialize by being more inclusive in what solutions look like rather than exclusive. And uh, we have different camps within the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party and in the activist base that uh, are, you know, if it doesn't have my favorite thing, then it doesn't matter. Or if it has the thing I really hate, then it, nothing matters. Then, and, and I think if that's the stance going in to 2021, we're going to have a lot less creativity and a lot less opportunities. But if, um, if folks are at least open to considering, uh, you know, so long as we're getting emission reductions, as long as tons are happening or removal, we didn't even get into that, but you know, you could see that as part of this discussion as well. As long as that, that kind of progress is the progress people are driving towards, uh, then perhaps, uh, perhaps we can have more could be possible than we're thinking of. That's great. Well, thank you guys for all your thoughts and for spending time doing this podcast. I know uh, we'll have a lot to talk about on each of these issues over the coming months and look forward to including you in future discussions. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah, John, Kyle, and Kevin for their insights. Be sure to follow their work for more updates on the elections. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. 